On Criminal, we tell true stories about people who've done wrong, been wronged, or gotten caught somewhere in the middle. I never did anything wrong. I never had a speeding ticket. So I think I just saved all my stuff up for just one thing. From lotto scams to black market whiskey to the accidental death of a rare and beautiful fish, we bring you stories about the most curious crimes around. Listen to Criminal every week, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You're listening to Someone Knows Something from CBC Radio. In 1972, five-year-old Adrian McNaughton vanished while on a fishing trip in eastern Ontario. Documentarian David Ridgen goes back to the small town he grew up in, searching for answers. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Oh, I know you guys. I've seen you. <laughs> yeah, and I uh, and I worked with your mom for many years. Solving cold cases, or as I call them, so-called cold cases, is something we're good at and <laughs> something we're not good at. And when I say we, I mean we, because I think that we all think that we can solve them. It's natural. We tend to impose order where there's none, so that. Any puzzle has a solution. We try to resolve chaos. Um, what I have is another microphone that I would like to put on Murray. So before we start, can I do that? I guess so, eh? Investigators are compelled by time and budget pressures to follow the strongest impulse because it's less risky and cheaper. But sometimes the strongest force in any investigation can be its weakest point. Well, I can't tell you very much because uh, I just don't remember a whole lot of back then. I just wish, David, you had been around doing this a few years earlier when our memory was a bit better. Barb McNaughton lost her son, Adrian. I almost don't want to talk about it because I don't want to relive it. I think I have it tucked to the back of my mind. And I don't think of it every day, but every so often I'll go to say something and I'll say Adrian. And weak points are built on, and our vision is telescoped, so that we find not the truth, but what we want to find. And, and Adrian was a vocal boy, like he could speak, he was not mute, he was able to oh, talk no. and scream oh, and no, yell. He was, and... he was quite normal as far as that goes, quite normal little five-and-a-half-year-old. Real busy old lad. He was a little guy, shy little guy. Ruth McHugh is a McNaughton family friend. He couldn't tie his shoes. He was only five. So he would have lost his shoes in that bush. It was very thick. Bad things happen to little boys sometimes. And that's what we figured happened, because there was just no sign of anything anywhere. And he, there had to have been. 
Lee McNaughton is Adrian's eldest brother. Being a nine-year-old, I wasn't very reflective. People would ask me, oh, your brother lost. How does that make you feel? My gut would sink when someone would ask me because my brother had disappeared and utter mystery. No idea what happened. It's because we're fallible, or I am anyway. Sometimes I imagine that I'm in a screenplay because it makes things easier to take. Let me just record a bit of this uh, sound here. We won't have to stick around here too long. And it's in moments of weakness that we're prone to point fingers. I had a lot of people, uh, they said a lot of stories that wasn't true. <laughs> Murray McNaughton, Adrian's father. People imagined that I'd been in an institution, mental institution, just sitting there. But that was not true. So what you're saying is people might have thought you were responsible. Oh, yes. That's got to be pretty hard to take. Yeah, sure was. It still, still bothers a person a bit. The stories that went about us were just wild that none of the children belonged to Murray. Well, a lot of people blamed Murray for it. Yeah, I remember one was uh, Murray had just got out of jail and he'd murdered him. I couldn't believe that. I just could not believe it. Barb McNaughton used to nurse with my mom at the Armprior Hospital. I'm sitting at her place with her husband, Murray. It's open concept with a big kitchen and a newer construction because their previous house burnt down and with it virtually all the mementos of Adrian's life. Barb's just come through some severe health challenges and is resting in a large mechanical chair that sounds like a garage door opening when it moves and she adjusts it often to find a comfortable position for the memory she's confronting. She smiles when she talks, even when describing the worst and it's an optimism that must have carried her through many storms. Things have run through my mind. Could it have been, when you hear today of the sexual predators, could someone have taken him? For that reason, he was a handsome little boy, and I've thought of that. You know, Murray doesn't think that, but I don't know. I would pray that he wasn't abused or tortured or anything like that. You know, but if we just knew, even if it was something like that, if we just knew. I have prayed that before I go to be with my Father in Heaven, that I will know. But saying all that, we'll also find killers. We'll find them by comparing the geography of a case to the way a bumblebee visits flowers. We'll find them by using x-rays and thermal scans and DNA and... And we'll find them, frankly, by simply looking back at the case and going through it. So, putting chaos in order has its place. And often, everyone knows something. And for sure, someone knows something. There was nothing ever found. Not a jacket, not a shoe, not a shoelace, nothing. It really upset me. I would like to know what happened to that little guy. There's something not right about that case. I think somebody's involved in foul play. The father was a likely suspect. 
He turned his back for 15 minutes. Never saw the child after that. And that's a bundle of crap. We'd been living there a number of years, and, and my parents are still there. They're long-time Armprior people, and so people will know, that, oh, they lost a child. That, that will be just part of the mythology of a town. The first time I ever heard about someone being missing, I was four years old and living in the Ottawa Valley in eastern Ontario. It's a place where everyone talks with a bit of an accent, a combination Irish, Scottish, and something else, I think. And when I go back there, I always slip into and indulge in a bit of the twang. There was logging in the valley back in those days, white pine, mostly, and I used to run on the booms with my friends in the Ottawa River. But there's none of that there now, boom and then bust. But it's a beautiful spot, surrounded by a great rugged wilderness. And it was into that that Adrian McNaughton disappeared when he was five years old. He was small for his age, hair more white than blonde, and just a year older than me. He was our child, and and he was a handsome little boy. Big brown eyes and the blonde hair, he was just beautiful. Murray used to call him his little, his pal, and he'd get up beside Murray and you know, and I'd say, "You back again?" <laughs> and his hair was white. I remember how uh, cuddly he was, and how excited he'd be for mom to come home in the morning. And sometimes he'd crawl in with me, waiting for mom. I remember that. I, I always felt like he was my shadow. I don't dwell all the time on it. I never wanted my friends to think I was looking for sympathy, so I didn't bring it up a lot. We haven't talked about that much at all, so... Why do you think that is? I mean, other than the obvious reasons. Well, there's the pain of it, but it's also, in many ways, it's it's done. I never knew Adrian, but... I moved into the area with my family shortly after he disappeared on June 12, 1972, while he was on a fishing trip. And he was from Armprior, that was my town. A place where people are concerned about getting their cats licensed, but not their guns. And it's always had this kind of frontier feel to me, isolated in its geography and its own particular sense of destiny. Adrian's is a case that's hung over the area like a dark mass ever since. I must have absorbed the case as if by osmosis because I can't remember people talking about it at the time. But I remember the fear and the basic detail. A little boy out there, somewhere, like me. I I collected clocks for 20 years and repaired them and got them running. He built that one. I put that together out of some parts. I'm just going to record your clock. Okay. Yeah. Feel free to use the washroom before you leave. Oh, okay, great. I think I'm okay. But Adrian's disappearance is one that the locals have talked about and wondered about. Even people who weren't alive at the time have been raised with an awareness of this case organizing themselves unconsciously around it like an unchanging contour that you can't help but go around because going over it's too damn hard. 
and very few people in this town of now close to 8,000 were unaffected. My friends, my family. So I'm starting here. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. It's mysterious and it's perplexing, and my hair is standing on end right now just thinking about where we're going. Just tell me what we're doing here. We're turning in the road to Holmes Lake. Adrian's father, Murray McNaughton, is driving this truck we're in. It's packed with tools and the odds and ends of someone mechanically minded, someone who instinctively collects things, saving them for unknown future projects. Murray's a short man, a few words, now 83 years old and much slower. And he was with Adrian the day he disappeared, but has almost never spoken about it since. His daughter Chantelle has come along too. Chantelle McNaughton was only two on the day her brother disappeared and stayed home with her mother Barbara. Today she's decided to come along for the first time to see the scene with her dad. She's calm and thoughtful, shorter in stature, priding herself on a daily workout regimen, and like the rest of the family, seems suddenly stricken when confronted with the moment of discussing Adrian's case. I don't remember him at all. I feel like I was robbed. I don't have any memories of him. I just, I don't remember. I hear the stories, and it, and it makes me think I have a memory, but I don't. Um, there's nothing at all that even, I see the picture of him, but that's the only thing I know of him is a picture. I do feel like I've, I have a phantom sibling somewhere. So what do you think about Chantel coming back here, coming here? Um, I don't know. It's, uh... Like I say, I don't have much memory of any of it, so I don't really have a whole lot of thoughts on it, to be honest. Not at the moment, anyway. Might be different once we get there. But Lee McNaughton was at Holmes Lake that day. Adrian's eldest brother, Lee, was nine years old at the time, and he's now an Anglican priest. He looks like his father, Murray, except four times the size. His hallway is lined with floor-to-ceiling bookshelves, and later he quotes Dostoevsky as perfectly as I've ever heard it. Before we begin our interview, we talk for a while about why I'm doing this podcast, and, and it gives me a chance to go back over the reasons for it myself. I try to explain that I'm not a media weasel looking to dig a hole in his family, and I think he believes me. Some would say, from a Catholic perspective, natural law says that if someone has done something horrible like that, we need to be found out, and that's why we like murder mysteries. We want something solved, because there is truth in the world, and so someone did it or someone didn't do it. We want the truth to come out. 
back on the winding, beautiful Calabogie Road, we've just passed a dirt smudge near some power lines. Murray slows down and seems disappointed. And there's the power line. Whoop! When I turned around, I missed the turn. As you can see, it's a while since I've been here. I wonder even if he tried, like how far a five-year-old guy like Adrian could have gotten and ground like this, you know? Like... Yeah. It's a surprisingly small lake. Somehow I had imagined something much larger. And you can see most of it from any place on the shoreline. But the area around it, I suspect, holds both the key and the lock to the case. We've apparently parked in the place where Murray left his vehicle 43 years earlier. And from there, we make our way along a sublime pine-needled path with red squirrel and Canadian shield accompaniment. A little farther than I thought. (laughs) Murray moves slowly and with effort. I think he's anxious to get this over with. It's been tough on he and his family. Especially so because, as any victim's family member will tell you, the first order of business in any investigation is to rule out those very family members as the perpetrators. That's where we're fishing, right along there. And right at that tree, that was the last time I saw Adrian. He was that close. He said he didn't want to fish anymore, so I went over and got the rod from him, and he walked up there. I see. And I didn't, I didn't see how far he went. And I think he went that way. So you think he went that way? I think so. What I don't makes, know. What makes you think he went north? Well, As Murray was, uh, tells his version of the story, I watch Chantal slip into a fugue state in the background. It seems to suddenly have become hard for her to breathe. Chantel, what do you think being here? How does it make you feel at this site? I mean... It is weird now being out here. And after you asked me earlier, just driving in, looking around, thinking, he could still be out here somewhere. That is possible. Anything's possible. Not in the immediate vicinity, I don't think. No, but it's a big area. And there's a lot of bush. Just when I went back to get your camera... And came back, I walked right past the path, and I'm like, wait, is that where I'm supposed to go? Like, two seconds. And I turned around, and wow. That was give you a bit of a strange feeling in the pit of your stomach. When he disappeared, that stopped all the fishing. The kids, Daddy Ring and I, were fishing right here. Fishing for spe- or speckled trout. When I walked away over the end of the lake... With the kids yelling, I come back and told them to stop yelling because it echoes around sound like wild animals. Let me just try to say hello here and see if there's an echo. Hello? Substantial echo. <laughs> yeah. Hello? Hello? Well, it sounds over to the west like it did before. Hello? Hello? Way over to the west. Could you tell in any way where I was there? Your documentary, I hope it works. I really do. But if it doesn't turn out, that's not going to surprise me. It, you know, I would have assumed if Adrian was going to show up, he would have showed up by now. But because it's been so long, 
unless someone person who knows exactly what happened and their conscience has weighed on them unless they themselves say, I know, and come forward and say, I suspect we're not going to know. And if there is that person, look into your heart and know that there's a family that has for countless years and over a generation now wants to know where their son and brother is gone and if anyone knows please say something so how'd that make you feel going back there oh it didn't bother me no not for this case anyway just another day you might as well turn that off now. I'm done. Okay. It was a long day for Murray. Then and now. And I know I've hit he and his family hard with my presence and my questions. And predictably I feel like shit for it. But there's new information. Murray said that there was a second adult there on the day Adrian disappeared. A fishing buddy named Donnie. And he's never been reported about before, I'm certain. I wonder why. I do like trying to figure it all out. The process of it. It's a kind of intoxication to find out who did it, who might have done it, what happened. And I think it's also a kind of arrogance that I bring to these cases where I actually believe that I can put two and two together and get four. Instead, I should be wondering what the hell a two is anyway. A symbol for a number. The symbols we follow that create the narrative because we make the links between them. The fishing trip, the ticking clocks, the sound the truck makes as we drive to the scene. They're all connected, right? The townsfolk who weren't there but know, and the family who doesn't talk, and the boy who was small for his age, and the people searching in the woods in a careful grid work with their dogs and the army and their hope, and no body. Frustratingly few details, such a simple chain of events, leading up to a blooming catastrophe. Murray's five-year-old son walked away from him that day on a fishing trip at Holmes Lake in June 1972 and disappeared into thin air. And where did Adrian go? On the next episode of Someone Knows Something. So tell me about who else was there with you. Well, I don't know whether he wants me to mention his name or not. Danny Ring, my fishing buddy. How are you? I've read a lot of news articles about the story of Adrian, and I've never heard anything about another guy being there. Yeah. Well, I guess it wasn't that important. Visit cbc.ca slash sks to see a photo of Adrian McNaughton and news clippings from after his disappearance. Subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app 
If you like the show, tell your friends. Someone Knows Something is hosted, written, and produced by David Ridgen. The show is also produced by Ashley Walters, Sandra Bartlett, and Steph Kampf. The music is by Bob Wiseman. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.